As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. And by Chargebee. Chargebee is the easiest way to set up your subscription billing. It's built on top of Stripe and integrates directly into your product. Go to chargebee.com forward slash rocket ship to get started for free. As you get more sure of the direction that you're skating, you can move into more of a, okay, let's, let's make some serious investments and do things that the business needs, that we're hearing from our customers, that, that will keep us stable for a long time. And uh, really just just let problem solving drive that whole thing. Today we talked with Benjamin Gilbert of Pioneer Square Labs, who was previously at Microsoft Garage. Pioneer Square Labs is, is essentially a, an idea incubation lab. And so they take various products and ideas and they build that MVP and they, they take it to market. So over and over, he is seeing that early product development cycle. So we talked to him about how they approach product development uh, and the steps that they take to bring an MVP to market. Really insightful conversation here. So stick around. We're going to get right into it. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Startups, from funding to growth, from culture to sales, and everything in between. I'm Michael Saka. And I'm Joelle Goldman. So welcome. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on today. Yeah, uh, happy to be here. Absolutely. Um, I'd love to hear first a bit about your background and, and your current venture. Yeah, sure thing. So I, uh, I'm the co-founder of Pioneer Square Labs, a uh, startup studio here in, in Seattle, and um, what we do is we uh, come up with ideas for companies, and we're a team of d- designers, developers, um, serial entrepreneurs, and former venture capitalists. And we kind of develop these super early stage ideas into products and then see if they're um, companies that we can spin out. And then we look for really talented um, kind of tech executives to, to take these things forward. And then we're back to the drawing board and work on, uh, on new problems. 
Interesting. V- very cool. And then before that, you were at Microsoft. Yeah, yeah. I did a couple things at Microsoft. I spent some time running the Garage program, which is our sort of internal um, grassroots incubator. Basically, anybody that has a good idea that wants to work on something that is really outside the bounds of their day job, the Garage was the place for that. And uh, before that, I, uh, I was a, a product manager on Office for iPad. So got a good chance to work on sort of the early stage V1 before we shipped that. Cool. So um, I'd like to, to, to hear about your product development strategy, since you guys are so focused on that now, on that early stage. I'd love to hear how you take a product from like ideation to the MVP. Yeah. So for us, it's all about solving a customer pain. And there's kind of two stages of, of validation that we really focus on, um, one of which is, uh, is verifying that people have this problem and they feel it super acutely. And the other one is about uh, validating that our solution is actually um, one that, that meet, meets their needs. So we really start with understanding a market and, and making sure, since the economics of our business are, are one where uh, we start companies that get backed by venture capitalists, they have to be ideas in big spaces. So we do a lot of the um, much more kind of traditional uh, business analysis of understanding total addressable market and how can we wedge our way in there and things like that. But what I focus more on is the early stage product development. So when we have a, a theory around an idea uh, that that we think, you know, hey, this space hasn't been um, disrupted in a while, or we think that um, there's a large and growing group of people that have a problem and, and uh, we think we can solve it. We try and talk to as many people involved in that industry or that um, kind of that, that space that we can to, to verify that there's a problem. And then that, that second part is really around, you know, we spend maybe two months or so building product and it, it totally varies based on whatever the company is. And, uh, and, and then we kind of take the really rough, very embarrassing version of that product out and, and really get people to, uh, to physically play with it. And I think that that, that's almost a humiliating process because the, the, uh, you're, you're getting all this feedback that uh, whenever you come up with an idea, you're, you're entirely, entirely wrong. You have like a, (laughs) a, a nugget there that's right. But you like get to ever watch everyone touch all the wrong buttons and, and, you know, you made something very confusing. And then our job from there is really taking that, that hopefully good insight that we had and like one good nugget and then figuring out how do we make sure that um, the rest of it flows from there. So what do you give them? I mean, what, what do you, what do you actually, is this a, like a framer prototype or, or what are people mm-hmm. using? Yeah, that's a that's a good uh, good question. So I'll use uh, Spare Five as an example. Um, I was at uh, Madrona Labs, um, but before this, I, this is my second startup studio, and uh, we we built this product called Spare Five, which enables people to make money in their free time by doing little tasks such as image tagging and things like that on the bus, and then um, you know on, on their way to work or while they're while they're sitting around. And on the other side of the business, there's businesses that want to. Uh, um, you know, have humans go through and, and do things that provide them large amounts of, of very useful data. So what we were doing, we were kind of solving two problems there. One was on this side of, can we make something fun enough that people would do it in their, in their spare time and, and get paid for it? Mm. And then on the other side, you know, what's the type of businesses that actually need big data sets that are created by individuals that, that are good at a particular skill? Mm-hmm. So 
what we initially did to verify the problem was that that's a, a time where we really aren't taking um, much around at all. We're often um, going with a list of notes and saying, hey, we think these are the top couple of pain points in your business, or we think that, um, you know, you you don't have a good solution for this and trying to hear the same echoing comments from people over and over again that, yeah, you know, I struggle with X, Y, Z. Now that we feel like, cool, box one is checked. And then when we go out to, to your point, do we take a framer prototype or something? You know, it really, it really depends. For this one, um, we had a team of pretty talented uh, iOS developers. So we actually just built like a very unstyled, um, very unsexy version of the app that didn't have a backend and it didn't have um, any of the sort of rich animations or things that it does now. And we took it out in just kind of a super raw form of actual executing code. It just happened to be, you know, all, all hard coded and stuff on the device. And um, what did you find? Like, what did you expect to find? And, and what did, what was the actual result of that test? <laughs> yeah. So this, there's a good, uh, one time we were on a team, uh, team offsite, and um, we were like really, uh, it, it's strangely hard actually to go and talk to strangers, especially when you're trying to explain like, hi, I'm an early stage product person. And like, this is a weird question, but like, will you play with this very bad app? And <laughs> right. it's, it's like, it's very embarrassing. So uh, we were talking to the um, lobby staff and then just going down at weird hours where there weren't customers and they were kind of just hanging out talking anyway. And, uh, and having them use it. And the, the thing that we really learned was it's way less fun than we were hoping it would be, mm-hmm. that we had kind of two goals. And one is, you know, people give high quality answers when we ask, describe this photo. And the other was that they have enough fun doing it that they'll continue to do it. And it took probably, you know, we, we, um, we actually spun it out to the full-time team and then stuck with them for probably, you know, three or four months afterwards. And it, it took a really long time, probably the first year, to actually make it fun. That we were relying really heavily on the fact that you know they, they were making money and that they felt a little bit of satisfaction from doing this thing. But actually coming up with the experience that someone wants to do this because they're intrinsically feeling rewarded and, and proud of the work that they've done, that was a thing that we really missed on at first. Interesting. Okay. And, and I mean... What made you keep going to think that you could make it fun? Mm. Yeah, you know, I think I think initially we thought that the the sort of business case for um, companies needing these rich data sets was enough that we could sort of overpay people for a little bit or potentially um, you know, rely on other things that rather than just fun, like we were going to maybe turn through people faster than we had hoped, but maybe we can go out and get more users to accomplish the same goals. I I think that um, we weren't necessarily confident that that we could make it fun. I think we were going to try and get as many of the right people that we could who had done game design or um, used used any sort of game mechanics or really built um, sort of two sides, right? The game mechanics and then the actual um, truly rewarding experience of the action. Okay. And, uh, and and kind of build teams around that. But yeah, initially it was more about, well, okay, maybe it's not fun enough, but we can do other, we have other levers to pull. So we're going to get right back to our interview with Benjamin after a word from our sponsors. So, um, and and kind of off the product of topic a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious about the data side. Um, was there any apprehension that paying for the data 
um, would reduce the accuracy of the data? That hasn't been a major concern. I think our, our bigger concern was that we wouldn't be able to find the right people to give us the accurate data. And the way that we, we sort of got around that, one, one example that we always talk about is we had a, a company that needed 100,000 photos of, of homes tagged to say, this is a living room, this is a dining room, this is shabby chic, this is modern, this is contemporary. And it was a, for, for a big customer in sort of the, the um, home renovation space. And we had to rely initially on um, people connecting their Facebook and then using their Facebook data to understand what their professional life was, what their work history was, and then making educated guesses on do they qualify for this task. And we ended up moving into sort of a two-step model where I was just sort of personally combing through all these Excel spreadsheets of data that were that were uh, generated. And before you can really like write any algorithms or um, use any litmus tests to determine um, if if data is good or not, it's it's always a good idea to just sort of pour through it and immerse yourself in it and and let the human brain do its magic of of pattern matching. And what we were sort of figuring out was there's definitely people that are listing themselves as a professional interior designer or um, a decorator or a home builder or something that, that like weren't actually good at at doing this particular task. And it was unclear if maybe they were like on a device where the screen resolution was, or, you know, the, the, it was too small or they didn't have good eyesight or they were breezing through it. But um, ultimately what we ended up doing is building a, a second component where you have to pass a quiz first with a bunch of known answers and get, you know, an 80% or higher in order to qualify for this. Hmm. Um, okay, so back to the the product side of things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was the next step after you you kind of tackled the the usability? You know, how, how do we engage people with it? What was the next step in the product development for you? Yeah, for us, then it became about um, actual the, the the process of delivering that. Since we had a two sided uh, marketplace, the process of delivering that data. Uh, in a, any sort of sensible way to our, our real true customer, these, these businesses that, that needed large data sets. So uh, originally, I, it was, you know, it's, it's early stage, so you're doing this sort of poor man thing of putting it all into a, a Google sheet and then sending that over and then writing an email with your personal recommendations and then realizing that's kind of a crappy customer experience. Like, that doesn't instill confidence that that were a business that they should, you know, integrate into their workflow and then trust. So then it became about, okay, how can we build dashboards that are more like what people are accustomed to? And that part was a lot about just researching products that I had really liked using um, in in a B2B context. So um, products that I felt like, wow, this dashboard is really well made or, um, you know, this whatever login screen looks like the standard login screen that people are, are used to. And I always feel like product development has two, two sides to it. There's the side where you decide it's outside of your wheelhouse. It's not the core competency of your business and you should not reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. And you look for what are world-class examples of, of people that do that really great. So for, you know, branding and copywriting, I always look, okay, what would MailChimp do? Because the, the, the thing that my business does is not necessarily being the best, um, the best at, at our messaging and cutesy graphics and um, all, all that. We're really good at another thing. And we just have to be like pretty good at that area. So <laughs> right. let's, let's figure out like what's best of breed of that and then do something in that vein. And then where you can really innovate is 
okay, what do we actually think is, think is our differentiator as a, as a business? And maybe we need to kind of use a new paradigm there and really go back to the drawing board and spend a bunch of cycles as designers and product people and developers and come up with something truly new. Interesting. And, and how do you know, is it the, the continual cycle of going back to the people and, and testing even these ideas? Like when you're trying to innovate, how do you know when you've hit on something that will work? <laughs> yeah, do you ever know? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, yeah it's, it's rare and takes a long time. But I, I think the product, the, the product development process, at least um, in the early stage with customer validation, is the, product of, the, the, the process of getting less wrong. So, you know, you hope to be directionally correct when you go and you talk to someone and their feedback now is, oh, you really incorporated what I was saying. Or, oh, I didn't even notice that I, I kept hitting the wrong button before. It looks like you moved it into the right place. And and a lot of times you see things, too, where people will, like, once they get a phone in their hands or you put them in front of a website, they'll be, like, doing a gesture that they expect to work and doesn't work. Mm. And then if you're able to to go back, implement that, and bring it back, and you start seeing that they, they're just more natural at, at using the thing. And they can't really articulate why, but they'll tell you like, oh, this is much nicer than last time. And you really try and, and make every time that you go back and talk to people a little bit better. And you're going to have missteps. So then you try and say, okay, that was a bad idea. And, and just make, make your process easily reversible to go back and then figure out what is the direction to make it a little bit nicer every time. And I, what is the, is there a methodology that you follow um, when when building product, be it agile or lean or waterfall? Is there something that, that you kind of bring to the team um, that sets a structure for how this will work? Hmm. I, you know, I think there's good things in each of those methodologies. And mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think the like funny thing about uh, agile is, no one actually does it 100%. It's like you, you take the best things and then you, you fork it and make your own little methodology based on it. I would say that we, we really do these sort of two-week sprints. I don't think that it's super formal. I think it's a team that is, uh, it's a, a thing that's sort of understood by the team of, you know, we don't want to wait too long to release this thing, but we, we want to get it out there. And you, you end up, you know, with an app, a slower release cycle, but with um, a, a website, a faster release cycle. But I, I always think that the the thing driving kind of how often you should release and how how large your um, your release sizes are is how much of this of this is an experiment versus how much of this is a a, a, a need like a do or die for the business and I think that when something is an experiment you don't necessarily overinvest in it like you try and get more signal. And in the early stage, everything is about trying to get a little bit more signal from your customers, a little bit more signal from the market. How can I get more information? And then you're, you're doing these kind of faster releases more often because everything is an experiment. So you're trying to do whatever the minimal investment that you can to learn the thing that you want to learn. And then, you know, the flip side of that is as you get more sure that you, uh, you, as you get more sure of the direction that you're skating, you can move into more of a, okay, let's, let's make some serious investments and do things that the business needs that we're hearing from our customers that, that will keep us stable for a long time. And, uh, really just, just let problem solving drive that whole thing. Mm. Who do you, um, 
who do, who does this really well? Is there like you mentioned Mailchimp for copy? Is there a team that does product really well that that you look to for maybe inspiration or um, insight? Mm. This is gonna be a weird answer because I I think that it was really really terrible for a long time, but recently Snapchat hmm. uh, that when I was talking earlier about. Um, you know, doing things that are unique and new versus doing things that are taking a cue from everyone else. I remember being on uh, on Office for iPad, and there was a lot of things where there were already examples of really great productivity that were native to the iPad, and we would look to them and say, "Okay, what are, what are the things we can we can take from this?" And then what we're bringing to to bear here, our core competency is, you know, it's it's the Microsoft Office that you know how to use and would expect, and is totally compatible. And I, I remember hearing, I was talking to a friend at Snapchat and he was saying how, you know, the, it's a culture of people that absolutely do not do that process. You, you, you're scoffed at, but in, in the culture there for, um, you know, looking at examples of, well, how did Facebook do that? Oh, they made a newsfeed. Let's do a newsfeed right. because their whole thing is about making a unique and different entertainment experience entertainment and communication, I would argue. And so, you know, you look at Snapchat and it's all gestural and there's a lot of sort of hidden things you can discover and, and totally crazy. And, and, you know, classically, our, all of our parents now that are getting into Snapchat, it's, it's like, I don't understand it. It's so confusing. It's because they really, you know, went to the mat and invented a new, new paradigm there for, for how you navigate and, and use in a mobile application. Mm-hmm. And, and it, that almost becomes their advantage. Right, right. And I look at it like, you know, no one, no one has been able to duplicate the success that they've had because they're so laser focused on we are not going to, in this one area that is our core competency, look to other people and make a thing that looks like the Facebook app that is just a different social network and happens to be ephemeral. They really said, this is the thing that we're going to innovate on. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so what uh, what was one of the hardest things for you to learn about product in the last couple of years? <laughs> yeah, so uh, the, you know, there's these ups and downs of of being in a studio environment. In the last nine months, we've worked on um, 21 different ideas, and only three of them are living today. So the really hard part is evaluating and coming up with. Some are soft and some are more rigid, but criteria for when you should stop working on something that's not working versus no, we just have to push a little bit further. And it's something that I think I'm I'm kind of personally still working on. I, I worked on a project for five months from January to May that we ended up winding down, and it's it's really hard to to kill your baby to um, mm. be dispassionate about something that you've put so much time and energy into. And you, there's like a piece of ourselves that gets embedded in every product that we work on. And I always like with really good products, you can see like, oh man, like I know something about the people that worked on this. They like put, put themselves into it. But the drawback is that it, it makes it really hard to, to walk away from something. And so there was, there's like a little, um, you know, there's a little period of like a, a lack of creativity or a lack of wanting to start something new because you feel like a, a little bit wounded after you wind something sure. down that, yeah. that that you were really invested in. And and how do you know when to wind it down? That's like the ultimate question, I know. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. when do you guys decide to wind down? 
Yeah. Yeah. Starting at the kind of uh, one side of the spectrum, you could work on something actually forever. There's always, if you talk to any CEO of a company that, you know, did their seed round, raised a million dollars, and then they ended up winding it down and you ask, why didn't it work? Blah, blah, blah. What would you do next? They always have a, what, what I would do next if I still had some more money. Okay. It's like another direction I could have explored or another feature that we could have done that, ah, oh, I feel like I don't know if that would have worked, but maybe. Yep. And, you know, in here, this is sort of a microcosm for funding and, and, uh, and, you know, and continuing to fund or stopping to work on companies. So for us, it's about constraints of the model. We've decided that our success will come from um, spinning out two to four companies a year and with a team of 10 with, you know, one to three people working on each one. It means that we work on ideas for three to six months. And if we don't believe that we can validate the idea within that amount of time, we shouldn't be working on it. And that's, it's very easy to do at the beginning is is look at something and be like, Oh yeah, that'll take, you know, that's an enterprise software thing that has a sales cycle of one year plus a product development lead time of two years because you need all these features. It's super easy to, before you get into it, decide that you shouldn't work on it because it won't fit in this, this sort of unique artificial time constraint that we've created for ourselves. Okay. But the really hard thing is once you get like a couple months in and then you start to slowly discover like, oh crap, this, <laughs> this, is, big, this, right? this is like it's going to take us a while to get to table stakes with what people are expecting here. And, and then like not falling into that sunk cost fallacy of, uh Oh, I already put two work two months in. Does that mean that I'm going to continue just because I've put two months in? So it, yeah, I, I think it, it, it's different for every business and it, it sort of depends on what constraints you've created for your team. Or if you're a, a small company with super limited funds, like, the very real constraints of your business. Right. And so do you guys have numbers or that you set beforehand that you're looking to hit numbers or goals or something that, that determine like, Hey, this is successful. We can continue to fund this. Um, or like you said, I mean, you've, you've, I think, what was it? You, you're continuing with three of 40, something like Uh, that. Three of 21, three of 21. Sorry. Um, yeah. So, so is, are there constraints that you set beforehand, um, that you say like, we need X number of users or we need to get this type of reaction from people? Yeah, totally. And you know, like some of these are more soft and some are more rigid, but we, we kind of split all of our companies into two buckets. There's business to business and business to consumer. Okay. And in business to consumer, there's, there's sort of three magical metrics that, um, it, it turns out when you go and, and try and raise money around these uh, these early stage ideas, basically everyone seems to care about, and that is growth, retention, and engagement. And so there's there's pretty standard, you know, there's weekly active users, which is your your growth number, and we shoot for you know five to ten percent week over week on any consumer product that we're working on, and that that seems to be. Um, you know, if you're able to continue on that trajectory for one, two years, um, you're able to really, really build something that 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 has momentum there. Mm-hmm. Um, engagement, you know, you you want to be creating something that's super habit forming. So we've shut companies down that we determined people are coming back once every two weeks. That's like not habit forming enough, and you end up not being at the front of people's minds. You want people opening this as part of their daily routine, and if not, at least you know, a few times a week as part of their 
They're, uh, maybe they open it only on the weekends or maybe they open it only on the weekdays or maybe it's a Monday morning thing. But either way, it has to be something that's part of the um, cycle of their life that gets integrated. Very and then, then, then retention, you know, the, that one's a little bit squishier because you can, you can have a business even if you're, you're churning out users for a while and then you try and clamp that down. But um, ideally, you know, people are not coming in and then immediately, immediately uh, moving on to. Uh, another thing to to catch their attention. Okay. Yeah, and then on the business to business side, that one's much simpler. Um, if you have a B two B product that likely has a much higher price tag, um, just just having um, you know a few like I think for Spare Five we had three paying customers by the time that we uh, we decided, yep, th- this thing has legs. We're going to spin it out. We're going to raise money and and go and find people for it. Um, we believed through a bunch of research that that idea could be sufficiently large, that the market was big enough. And we were like, cool, we're actually not having a hard time getting people to pay us. That has legs. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for, for coming <laughs> on and sharing. Um, where do we keep up with you? Where, where, where can we, um, you know, keep up with the many products that you're, you're putting out? Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. And thanks for having me. Um, I'm on Twitter at uh, Gilbert, and uh, if you if you follow me there, you'll probably um, um, end up getting very strange. Uh, uh, I, we we talk a lot about we're we're kind of like closed about the products we're working on, but okay. oftentimes we're asking questions on Twitter about people who've been in the space. So um, you'll get a good insight about what what we're actually working on there. Interesting um, on Twitter, and then I do a podcast too. So I. Uh, it's called Acquired at Acquired.fm, and uh, we talk about technology acquisitions. Awesome. Awesome. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, and um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Talk to you. I really hope you're enjoying this product series so far. We still have a little ways to... Big thanks to our sponsors, Team Gant. Go to teamgant.com forward slash rocketship and use the code SAVEONTG to get 50% off your first six months. And by Brand Bucket, go to brandbucket.com forward slash rocketship. You get a special offer. Plus, you can get your next company name, logo, and domain all in one spot, just like Mattermark. You really can't lose there. And buy Chargebee. Chargebee is the easiest way to set up your subscription billing. Go to chargebee.com forward slash rocketship and get set up for free. So if follow us on Twitter at rocketshipfm. You can follow me at Michael Saka, Joel at Joel Goldman. And we'll see you back here in just a couple days. Want to reach the girls? Follow us on Twitter at rocketshipfm. And where is now that you are listening? Thank you. Bye-bye.